Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Well, I am joined today by Tobias Pano. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to do the podcast, Tobias. My pleasure. Um, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be very lazy, and in previous guests, I have done the, the bio beforehand because as I always say there's nothing more tedious than sitting through your own podcast or your own bio <laughs> but what I realise is I do want to check to make sure everything's up to date and also if I'm if I'm being perfectly honest it saves me a little bit of editing so let's get a real time bio here so Tobias is an emotional health practitioner and social worker is that how you would best categorise yourself? yeah uh, and you have a background in government child protection and, and uh, counselling and you, like myself, have worked with kids with complex, very complex backgrounds, very complicated family systems within government systems and obviously within their family system. But you now run your own business. And what I'd actually like for you to do is take me from those days working in child protection, I suppose, to here. Let's just, let's just go that way. So let's, let's flesh out the bio with the actual truth instead of me reading from, an, from a script on the internet. Sure, sure. Um, well, so, and I think you might also be interested in my experiences with ayahuasca and where this all kind of, my interest in psychedelics all started, which was pre-child protection. So that was, um, so I, I did my master's in social work in 2014 and in 2016 and halfway through in 2015, I took a year off. Right. Okay. Now I get the chronology. South America so and right. had my experiences. Yeah. So you, so let's get this timeline. So you sandwiched in the middle was a trip to ayahuasca that must have been <laughs> a very a very different part one and the second half must have been quite different of your <laughs> academic experience <laughs> yes yeah it was um and i mean yes i had my experience with ayahuasca but i also traveled for 10 months with a group of friends through the u.s through south america so it was also a lot of fun but i drank ayahuasca at the beginning of my travels and that was where I had a revolutionary or transformational experience. And then I went on and had my fun, did my traveling, went road tripping with a group of friends through the US. And then at the end of the 10 months, I sort of decided that this was such a meaningful experience that I wanted to revisit. And I went back to the same place that I'd been to, the Sacred Valley. And I spent a month on like a self-made retreat doing, you know, all of the things the yoga, the meditation, the mindfulness, the dieting, the ayahuasca, San Pedro. For a period of a month, I just did a full deep dive into into medicine work before I came home. So you went, first month or two, you were traveling, you went to the Sacred Valley. Where is the Sacred Valley? The Sacred Valley is in Peru. In Peru. So you, Sacred Valley, how much information did you have on board about ayahuasca before you first drank? So I had read about it a little bit. Uh, online and I was curious about this this medicine and I have always had an interest in mindfulness meditation and sort of alternative ways of of looking at mental health and um, and I guess that was reinforced by my first year of social work where one of my main professors really instilled in us a biopsychosocial paradigm for working with mental health. And it seemed to me that ayahuasca worked in that similar paradigm, you know, biological, psychological and social. Um, and so I was kind of drawn to it already. 
and I was curious about the effects that it could have. And then I met a traveler who, who told me about it and told me about his experiences, how amazing it was. And he even said that he would take me to the place that he'd been to, to share the experience with me. We all need that friend though. It's the person who says, stop listening to that shit, listen to this and gives you your, you know, first album of your favorite band. You <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. Like I, as much as I could have read online, just having a person who I trusted, who I'd traveled with, who I knew pretty well, um, reassuring me that this was safe and that he knew what he was doing and that these people knew what they were doing. That was enough for me to feel safe. Yeah. So you had some information on board, no real experience. Like the reason I'm jumping all over the place, guys listening is Tobias has done two podcasts previously, um, that touch on a lot of these topics. I think the interviewers do a better job than I ever will. So I have quite detailed show notes on my, uh, on my website for every episode and my goal is for people to who scratch you know, want to scratch the itch a bit deeper so if you want the sort of full chronological story of how Tobias got to where he is uh, you can sort of I will link to those two podcasts they're both very good um, but I want to drill a little bit more into that 10 months because I think it's clearly quite a, a turning point so prior to that you have mentioned on other podcasts about how you'd had you know different psychedelic experience had you you'd had other experiences but just the sort of garden variety experiences beautiful recreational ones with your mates back here in, in Australia what was the experience of ayahuasca or the exposure to ayahuasca as growing up in Australia and you know when did you when were you a teenager like I've, I've you're very youthful looking I'm not sure what age you are but what what was the exposure to ayahuasca like in your sort of adolescent and teen years I ne- never heard of no. ayahuasca until pretty much the year before I went yeah and drank it Wow, so it was quite a, quite a quick, you know, from I've never heard of this substance, I don't know what it is, to full on recapitulating your own, you know, <laughs> dieta and everything that's been in the space of, you know, a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember from my high school education of drugs, I sort of um, was told that, you know, LSD and all those other drugs are dangerous and that... Um, and also I was told that the brain kept growing until you were 25. So for some reason I had this arbitrary rule I'd set for myself, which was that I wouldn't take harder drugs until I was 25. <laughs> so I didn't. <laughs> and um, and then The logic 20- of a teenager. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then at 25, um, then I decided, well, it's okay now. I'll give it a shot. And I had a friend who, you know, said he he would do it and basically he organized for um some acid for me and a group of my close friends to all take on a day off in the sun and it was that was my first introduction it was a beautiful experience but even then I still hadn't heard of ayahuasca um yeah it wasn't until I started studying social work and started to get more of an interest in the healing world that I was exposed to to ayah yeah so you're You've had some really fantastic recreational experiences. I think the through line here is the best. You've had in the couple of initial ones, as we'll get into with ayahuasca and also with LSD, you had good mentors, people who who, who just were in contact with your you know, space. They weren't that much older than you, perhaps, but they had a sensibility for this and they just guided you into your... You know, they initiated you into these experiences in a really positive way. Um, so you met this chap... Who, who was the guy that you met as he... Is he a friend of yours still, or you? 
um, the guy that's with yeah, me yeah, in the ayahuasca yeah, retreat. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a friend of mine called Jared who, uh, you know, I haven't been in contact with him much in the last several years. But, yeah, yeah after he, we did that trip together, you know, yeah. we travelled for some weeks together, me and then my other group of friends went and visited him in the US in his home okay, on, our, on another part yeah, of our yeah. trip. And so yeah. we went and visited him there. And, yeah, he's a friend. Awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jared, hope, hope this gets, if this gets to you, then you know the universe is, is shining on you today. Um, so you took ayahuasca. Tell me what happened. Well, so we arrived. Um, it's like a, a little bus that takes you another 40 minutes outside of the Sacred Valley. And then we arrive in this beautiful location that's surrounded by these mountain tops, golden, silver mountaintop peaks in a sort of semicircle around this central plain. <clears throat> and in, in that plain, there was this little community that had been set up with a lot of kind of um, like huts and kind of weirdly designed, like earthy kind of based buildings that this community had built. And one of them was this beautiful cylindrical um, building or temple designed for ayahuasca ceremonies with like wooden tiers, you know, of circles of people that would sit and acoustics that rung around it and um, a window on the ceiling of the temple that you could look out into the night sky from. Um, and yeah, and I went and set up in this beautiful space with about 20 or 30 other people also sitting for ceremony for the first time, as well as a French facilitator um, and several musicians, you know, who, who were set up as well to kind of play us music through the night. And they ran us through, you know, what the process would look like um, and, and then basically they said bars open and, you know, people start to, you know, they say things like that as a bit of a joke, trying to make light of what's happening. Um, and one by one people from the circle would get up and sit before the, the shaman or the facilitator and he would pour them a cup of ayahuasca and then they go back and sit down again and slowly you'd go through each person and they drink their ayahuasca and then, then you kind of sit and you wait and sometimes it takes an hour and a half before the thing comes on and you start to feel anything. And for me, for some reason, I have a, a gut or some sort of resistance. And so it took me, I had to go back and drink two or three times before I started to feel the experience of it. But I remember this moment when I was looking up at the ceiling of the, of the Maloka or the temple, um, which had a Maloka kind of like roof. And just noticing that my perception of the the roof was starting to kind of warp in this really strange way, not like with LSD where little things would kind of um, shift or little colors would drift in your vision. It was more like the whole sense of three-dimensional space was just getting kind of warped. And that's when I realized that I was starting to feel the effects. And, you know, a lot of it I can't remember. Um, but some of the salient things are that, you know, I was shown a part of myself which was perhaps responsible for some kind of depression. It was a kind of victim part of myself that felt, you know, a little bit hard done by or poor little me in the world. And I was kind of shown that part of myself very directly and then it was excised from my system in a really powerful way and it was kind of like teaching me that depression was a choice at a really really fundamental level not in a not in a kind of simple or superficial way like oh I'm I'm just going to choose not to be depressed anymore but you know deep down it was a choice 
Um, and that in a weird way liberated me from that, that place that I was, or that, that place that I occupied sometimes uh, of, of kind of dark circular thinking that I think is, you know, was my particular version of depression that I was dealing with. And, um, and then there was that, and then there was a couple of other things, you know, um, something powerful that I remember was, um, you know, I went to this place where there was, you know, kind of these giant insects that sort of seemed to be almost like dredging out my unconscious mind and clearing it, you know, and what happens sometimes is you, you experience something like that where something gets dredged out and then that's when you that's when you purge on the ayahuasca and it feels like it's taking something which is spiritual or mental and making it visceral and then you purge it and you're kind of cleansing or clearing your system from that. Um, so I remember that and one other thing that I remember was an image of my mother in a in a locket and it was an image of her when she was quite young and there were some other things that, that went on but what I remember is that it was kind of showing me who she was or helping me to recognise who she was outside of the perception of her as my mother. You know, my as a child, you know, you kind of only see your parents as the people that are your parents and you not always able to recognize them for the full adult that they are and the full life that they've had before you. And so it was showing me that. And in, in a weird way, I remember, yeah, I think it kind of helped me to disentangle to some extent from the attachment that I had with my mother and perhaps some of the negative things that were associated with that attachment. Well, it's just the space that opens up around those core relationships as a totem for expansion in in people's psyche is 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 crazy that you it took you a while to be aware i suppose of that the fact that you were you know it was working what was your mind state like you know after the bar was open i'm sure you had to sit around and watch other people quite clearly pass into a different space I'm, I'm curious to know what it was like in the transitional phase for you if it took a while um, you know it's interesting you say that because uh, I think my first ceremony I was brave and I was fine relatively I had this steadfast calm mindset yeah I was a bit anxious but not really um, but since then I've actually you know I've developed some fear around anxiety because of some difficult experiences that that has happened and now I think my relationship to it is is a little bit more uh cautious a little bit more reverent maybe but when I first went in I yeah I had this kind of naive brave yeah. braveness I, I wonder sometimes um doing myself out of a job here but the podcast space can feed a certain type of intellectualizing of a process. And it would be interesting to do someone to do a very simple piece of research. Okay, everyone who arrives at the following ayahuasca retreat, how many hours of podcasts about ayahuasca have you listened to before you do this? You know, there'd be a hockey stick growth and then the question is, and and how useful is that for you? You know, that that let's call it beginner's mind you know I don't think naivety I don't think you're being fair on yourself that 
th- that is the sort of mythological motif of the, the you know, it's the bravery of Simba is different to the bravery of Mufasa, but it's necessary to get you to the next stage because you might not have drunk it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so I think a certain amount of uh, naivety or bravery, whatever way you want to call it, is is important. Um, it's fascinating. Um, what was it like in the community afterwards, the next day? You mean the group that had drunk it? So in this context, it was a one-night sit. It wasn't, uh, <clears throat> it wasn't a retreat where all of those people were connected to each other. So I don't know really how everybody else is going. And um, yeah, I, I think um, in retrospect, if I were to do ayahuasca again, I probably would go to a retreat where there's a clear structure, a beginning and an end of you know maybe a period of a week or two weeks with the same people going through a process together. And I, I would really love to do that at some point. Um, whereas the way that these guys were doing it was, yeah, it was just like you sign up for a ceremony and you come for the one night, drink, you stay the night and then you go home the next morning and that's it. You're done. And, um, you know, some, some people from that area who I spoke to, you know, they didn't say it was a bad thing, but they were a bit cautious about the way that it was being done. Um, by this group in the sense that it seemed to be more about, you know, trying to get as many people in as possible to kind of spread the word, if you will. Um, And so, yeah, I kind of share that reservation now in retrospect and would have, yeah, would have loved to do an ongoing kind of thing like that in a container. Yeah, absolutely. So you're you're out of the experience and then you're on the bus back the next day. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> back, put the put the backpack on, and <laughs> off you go. See you later. Bye. Good luck. Happy integrating. Yeah. <laughs> Happy integration. Just on the back of the bus, just looking out the window, going fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. 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 So, what were the like? Can you remember what the the, uh, the last couple of the days after were like? What was it like when you? Um, I was just, uh, I was awestruck you know it was like it was like the veil had been lifted and the world was no longer the same place that it used to be in a wonderful way I felt this extremely strong urge to call every person in my life and tell them what had happened to me and how it had affected me and I did I sent a lot of emails you know really heartfelt emails and I think from that time my sort of openness and willingness to express love with people who I'm close to has gone up exponentially, you know, didn't used to hug my father. And I certainly didn't used to say, I love you to him prior to this experience. But after this experience, I do do now, I do do that now, you know, I've kind of, it was uncomfortable to start with, but you know, I do that now because I do, I love him. Um, but it was just, scary and not acceptable to do beforehand but something about this experience just shifted me it cracked me open it changed my world and i yeah i was just i was just awestruck and amazed that's amazing um what was the reason i'm just digging into this is because it's clearly so so much of a it's not that common really that you get someone who is quite with great clarity can say there was a before and and an after Mm. um it sometimes gets lost in the noise a little bit. Yeah. And then you clearly acted on it in a quite a practical way when mm-hmm. you got back. So 
you send out a lot of emails. It's a very different world when someone on the other side of a, you know, a Gmail account. So people are getting these really <laughs> heartfelt emails. Uh, the reason I ask is because I've had an experience of just volunteering at Synthesis, the psilocybin retreat in Amsterdam, or mm-hmm. in Zandvoort, I should say. And, you know, one of the strongest impulses when people were coming off the experience, still technically, you know, under the influence, for want of a better term, and a lot of them had that compulsion to, to, to message. And and then there was this sort of reflexive rule, you know, don't let people do that, which is fair enough, and it has a lot of um, sound reasoning behind it. But anyone who's had a psychedelic experiences knows that feeling, I think, to do. And it doesn't feel... It doesn't really feel like, like oh, in the morning you're going to think that's a bad idea when you really get down to ground truth of, of how to connect with people. <laughs> you know, It's like we are all going to die. You do love people. We have a finite amount of time. Nobody goes to their grave saying, oh, you know, there's th- things things gone, that have gone left unsaid are, are a big, you know, ongoing problem for the world. So you send out all these emails. What what came back? What were what was the general <laughs> vibe? <laughs> what the fuck? Um, I think you know I, I didn't. Those emails weren't um, not quite like sent the next day or anything sure. like that. So it wasn't quite as. I mean, I definitely resonate with what what you're saying, and I do think that that word of caution is very valid. Mm-hmm. And there are probably a couple of emails that I wish maybe I hadn't sent or I don't know you know I think even when you're traveling you know the state of mind that you're in and where you're at and where you're sharing from you know you're in this liminal space as well uh everything is up in the air uh, especially when it's a 10 month trip like that Mm -hmm. you know I was in a space uh that was very different to normal daily life and um, so, you know, I, I kind of, even though I can reflect on those emails and can, I can imagine what it would be like to receive them if you were going about your daily life and you get this email from your mate over in South America and he's pouring his heart out by ayahuasca, you might find that a bit kind of strange. Um, and, and, but I kind of look back at myself and I have kind of a, a warm, nurturing kind of, oh, you know, love for myself Mm -hmm. uh for doing that and um and i think a lot of those emails were received well because they were coming from a good place and you know a lot of the time all it did was it just opened up a dialogue it was me letting them know that they were important enough in my life that i wanted them to know about this thing Mm -hmm. that had happened to me type of spontaneous Um, and organic integration of your own you know it's the scent i mail is as important as the received one to a certain extent I can imagine yeah that's true as well yeah so you had you had this 10 month period um that that was a, that must have given you some space and time for things to percolate you know in a way you say we, you had to leave that there the, the you know the, the space that the Moloko the day after but you actually had quite a long integration period yeah uh, so I'd love to hear how that sort of how that played out over your trip Okay, well, um, I guess messily is the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the emails were just the beginning. (laughs) Real messy, yeah, the emails Uh, were the beginning. That was when I first had it, right at the beginning of the trip. And, you know, 
involved in all of this was um, the sort of gradual breakdown of my relationship at the time, who the person I was traveling with. Oh, right. Or the, she was the main person that I was traveling with. And so a lot of that time I should, it is really characterized by heartbreak and, and challenge romantically um, for both of us. And, and I think, you know, traveling made that more difficult. Mm-hmm. Ayahuasca made that more complex and added more confusion into the mix. Um, and, you know, my journey is what it was, <laughs> you know, and I can look back at it and go, gee, I'd do things differently now. If I knew what I, what I know now, if I knew, if I knew that then I would have done things very differently. Um, but yeah, the truth is that I was young and just working it out. And, um, I think I caused a lot of grief in that time to my partner at the time. And yeah, I do regret having, you know, caused that grief. And, um, and I think that the confusion of traveling and the confusion of ayahuasca probably contributed to that to some extent. And then of course there was the traveling and, and all of the other things that come with traveling and, you know, uh, uh, all of that sort of stuff. And two of my other friends traveled over to the U S and I met and I met with them in San Francisco and another one of my friends lives there and we all bought a car together and we went traveling and my partner came as well and we went driving around the United States hopping from national park to national park and that that was a really beautiful part of my experience but yeah I kind of I dare say I almost had my experience and then I kind of went on with the travel yeah but the influence the the experience kind of echoed throughout that time you probably were never not thinking about it I can imagine (sighs) yeah yeah yeah. it was always there in an ambient way um, like the traveling side of things, you know, for anyone who's doing it or done it or is thinking of doing it, like it's great fun, but those sorts of big trips, there's just, a, there's quite a, a multifarious barrage of logistics that you have to deal with. It feels like you're sort of constantly running project managing your own, uh, you know, your own trip. So that to me is, it's been my experience working in residential centers. And when I say residential, I mean you know, like rehabs, like nice rehabs, was stabilizing all of those like to-do list things, you know, we did the laundry for the clients, you know, the food was prepared for them, all of those things. They didn't really have to, they were able to sort of transcend a little bit the normal grind. And there's a t- certain different type of grind when you're traveling. It's just it's just a more exotic grind. Uh, and I think that's one of the things which precludes against a sort of sinking into things that you've realized so i don't know if without your experience 100 percent, 100 percent. traveling is a yeah so so we come you come to the end of this trip and we could uh what what how what was your thought process that you went back to the sacred valley how did you end up like what was going on that you went okay i've got to go back and and i'd love to know about your whole how you structured your your own sort of data well i guess i um at the end there, my partner and I were separated and I had this last period of time to travel by myself and I'd had such a profound experience at the beginning that I felt inspired and I wanted to learn more and grow in that sense. So 
and go deeper basically you know I'd, I'd kind of just scratched the surface I felt so I thought all right I'll go and do this a bit deeper um and yeah that was it I just did a self-made retreat I kind of sat down thought about it went okay I'll do a San Pedro ceremony here I'll do an ayahuasca ceremony here I'll stay at this hostel that does meditation and yoga every day and um and spend a lot of time by myself to be honest in a room by myself in reflection going deep um and I can't say it was an easy experience it was a very sometimes grueling and difficult experience um and sometimes quite a lonely experience at that time um but also yeah very powerful and that was where I think I met practitioners that to this day I am inspired by how they work Paul and Sue at the hummingbird retreat in um Peru in the Sacred Valley the from the way that they caretake their home how it looks to um the way they the depth of their relationship with the medicine to the way they hold groups and individuals is just to me is very fine-tuned beautiful well done carefully thought out from the beginning to the end he's kind of like a um guy who has experience with yoga uh, with um living in india under a guru and that kind of uh, approach to spirituality and growth and um she is more like an energetic healer and has that more earthy kind of direct relational skill set and together they form this epic team and yeah that just the way they did group medicine sits to me to this day if i were to do group medicine sits i'd like to do it the way they did it that's that's the hummingbird retreat and yep. that is in sacred in Valley, the sacred valley, sacred valley. Yep. so we'll we'll link to whatever you know website and different resources they have so people can check it out because recommendations from people such as yourself i think go a long way given the there's a lot of uh, noise into the signal now of people having horrendous experiences you know off the bus at Iquitos and you know just there's a whole horror show that I don't really have the scope to get into right now but I think we, that's that's a whole other podcast isn't it you know to talk about what's happened to the to what's happening to the people who are traveling right now yeah <laughs> shamans. yeah yeah so you, you um you have a background and a strong interest from quite young in in Buddhist Buddhism and Buddhist meditation were you you know you're in your room a lot what what was your practice how would you sort of characterize your practice when you were on those moments of being alone um well it was mixed yeah so some of it was a lot of it was written you know oh, right, I, okay. to this day I still write regular self-reflections written self-reflections I just open up a blank document and I just let my mind spill out whatever needs to be said and I almost you know I run a check I'm like what's bothering me what's you know what's going on right now and I, I write about it and that helps uh and that that helped me massively with my integration and uh actually there's something that Paul the guy from the hummingbird yeah. retreat he encouraged me in that you know um especially with a psychedelic experience, you know, you're getting taken into this liminal space of the unknown and the mystery and the ego dissolution and all of that beautiful stuff. You're getting taken into your heart and into the world as it is more directly experienced. 
not through the filters of the mind as much. And yet it's still really important to then reflect on those experiences through the filters of the mind so that you've got an anchor point, you've got something to hang it off and and understand it, you know? So it's kind of like from the beginning I had this perception that integration was a balanced process of having a practice which brought you into that direct contact with reality, the the heart space, that sort of being, as well as the mind and, you know, writing, reflecting, thinking about your life, so on and so forth. So I guess I was moving between those things, going to yoga classes, going to meditation classes, um, going on hikes by myself, running, meditating, all of that sort of stuff. Did your future... As an interesting point is I would imagine that some people find the profundity and the sort of ineffability of, of you know, take your pick of, of whatever psychedelics. Talking about them, finding out ways that they could plug back into your, you know, real life per se, there can sometimes be this reflexive sense that you're somehow doing violence to them, you're cheapening them, you're sullying them, and there are enough people out there, there's a critical mass of people who are puritanical enough about it that they'll sort of infer that that is, oh yes, you shouldn't do that. And I sometimes wonder, you know, what is their unconscious motivation? Because seeing people take this divine stuff and then plug it back into the most banal things is for me, I find that very beautiful. It's like, oh wow, you've actually made incredibly good use of... (laughs) you know this and this gift so you're you're journaling you're doing different things which are sort of integrating it seems like that was when you were really starting to develop your own style of integration you know you were your first client in a way yeah yeah i've not thought about it like that That definitely that was the petri dish how much was future-oriented thoughts coming in at that stage because I can, you know, we're obviously going to get there and I'm very curious to see how this all then plugged back into your research. But at that stage, you're, you're coming to the end of your trip. Did you know you were, were you planning on traveling more? Or were you sort of thinking, nah, I'm, I'm going home now? I knew I was ready to go home. Yeah, yeah. I was done. And I remember at that point in time, I sent a very cautious email to my professors. Very different to work. the first email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, because I wanted to write my thesis on ayahuasca and at that point in time, there wasn't really, you know, a, a lot going on in that in the field, and not as well. There was still a fair bit, to be honest. What just, year? What year was no, that? It was nowhere near as much as there is now. Yeah. That was twenty fifteen. Yeah, it's like Moore's Law. That's like a millennia ago now at the stage. So twenty fifteen, and so you're saying to your, can you remember what you wrote in the light and in the subject line? <laughs> <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to know what the title was. You know. <laughs> Um, yeah, something, something kind of sweet, like, um, possible thesis topic. <laughs> question mark, question just a little, mark. a little taster, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so you're, you send an email back and it's, it's got this very different tone. Um, and how did you pitch it? Um, I think I was just honest. I said, Hey, I've had this experience and I think it, um, I think it's valuable and I've checked out the literature and there's quite a bit of literature out there about ayahuasca in particular. There wasn't really anything about San Pedro or not, not really much about MDMA or mushrooms at that time, a lot less, but there was quite a decent amount about ayahuasca. So I, um, yeah, I said, hey, there's a bit of literature out there. Could I, could I write a thesis on this? 
And they said, yep, as long as you're willing to put in the work to back yourself, to actually demonstrate evidence, you know, and speak from a critical place, go for it. Hmm. Fascinating. So you got, you pretty much got the green light. Yep. At that stage. Um, and had you picked out a, had you picked out a, like a supervisor or how did that go? Like, did you just know who to go with or did they give you somebody there? Well, in my course in social work, um, there wasn't, it, it's not the same as psychology. Yeah. Um, and I had the freedom to choose my topic, which is great. And then they basically, they would kind of, we would negotiate who would be my supervisor, more or less based on the methodology, particularly because nobody, no one in, at my university is an expert in psychedelics. So <laughs> I couldn't pick an expert. I couldn't pick somebody who actually knew a lot about psychedelics, but I could choose someone who knew a lot about qualitative methodologies and also someone who knew who was pretty savvy with psychology or the mental health side of things. So those were my two supervisors. Sue, Susan Young, she is an expert in qualitative research methods in social work. So she would kind of help me with that side of things. And then Mark Suchman is my other supervisor and he would kind of help guide me with the mental health. Um, and he was very good at, um, I guess, holding the critical lens up to the work you know, uh, he's always been quite neutral. Um, and if anything has pushed me around, you know, like, so what psychedelics? So what, how is this different to any other medication? You know, kind of asking those questions to push me to really justify myself to, um, people who might be quite critical of it. And those two professors are the same supervisors that I have now for my PhD as well. Oh, very good. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you should have brought them along. Yeah, yeah. They've been Converted along for the them. whole journey. <laughs> oh, fantastic. There's the dyad right there. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, please just, I'd love to hear a little bit more. I mean, I've had a look through it a little bit, but I really would love to get your thoughts now, you know, with a bit of daylight between you and the actual just give us a little bit of a scope of, of, of the master's thesis and, and, you know, that bit of research and, and what you were angling at. Uh-huh. Stretching my memory a bit here, but <laughs> um, basically it, it was actually only a review of the literature, yeah. you know, because I was studying full-time and I had a four-month full-time prac that year. It was just really, you know, it was trying to keep it as simple as possible. It was a qualitative review of the literature, trying to answer the question how ayahuasca works, right, but by looking at the perceptions of people who took it, people who gave it, the facilitators and the participants and people who talked about it. So what I was looking for was how what ayahuasca was perceived to offer its benefits. And, you know, and I came up with 11 odd themes, things like um, it operates through a biopsychosocial spiritual lens you know it operates body mind soul seems to be the rhetoric that the shamans use and the participants experience and that's part of the reason that they were drawn to it in the first place they found the biomedical model a little bit too limiting and they wanted something a bit more holistic um there was sort of like themes of um being able to process trauma you know, and emotional content deeply through their experience, um, contacting their hearts, things like that. Um, mindfulness was a theme that seemed to come up a lot. People just kind of seemed to have an enhanced capacity for mindfulness after they sat with ayahuasca. 
Um, you know, neurobiology was a theme that came up, you know, talking about implicit memories and explicit memories um, and how people were able to kind of process unconscious fear-based memories um, through their ayahuasca sits. Um, and then, of course, there's the the purging, you know, the cleansing that people experience through ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, there's a There was a handful of others, but, yeah, essentially it was trying to capture how people perceived it to work and, and how that was different to the current mental health paradigm, which it seemed very much to me that it was quite different. It's quite... In a way, whenever I was reading through it, it was like, it seemed like a fractal sense of everyone's focused on the mechanisms of action, which is fair enough and there to be found out. But mechanisms of action are fractal. You know, the question of what is the mechanism of action at the sort of level of a social worker's analysis is different to the pharmacologist, is different to the psychiatrist, is, is different to the politicians. And there has to be some sort of respect for you know, that term is, shouldn't really be, I don't think, monopolized by the biologists. But at the same time, then we have to know that, you know, terms, they can't be too loose or it, all of a sudden then, you know, they, they, they lose their, their meaning. But that mechanism of action of, of, of ayahuasca seems like a very interesting question that the West is going to have to ask yes. itself. And that's yes. sort of... A, I love the I love the way you described that. It was it was as if I was doing a piece of research on what is the mechanism of action, but at the level of social work, not at the level of um, the pharmacologist looking for the kind of which neurotransmitters happen and do this thing over there. And I was looking at the social work level, and that reminds me of one of the core themes which I didn't mention, which was the community aspect. And the, that being such a central part of people's experience was that, especially for those that went on retreats with a group of others, over time how sharing that experience with other people was such a foundational part of their healing journey. And so, yeah, there's, there's something, and other people have written papers about the sort of psychosocial, the group um, potential of healing with medicines in, in groups and in nature and all that sort of stuff. So It's uh, once you sort of, pick it apart and say you know the restoration of the internal social fabric if you want to take a sort of family systems model and then also actual physical social fabric you know that is that is absolute bread and butter stuff for social work and all of the you know the whole pantheon of people who are are dealing with fallouts of trauma really in our society so how was it perceived you know I'd be curious to know come back you've, you've got your your supervisors what, what sort of stuff were your were your peers researching like in comparison <laughs> <laughs> i don't know like uh, i think one one of my peers Brittany, she did a research project on on um suicide prevention yeah. and uh, i think the efficacy of certain suicide prevention training programs yeah. you know um things like that yeah so mine was quite unique and people loved it they thought it was yeah, interesting yeah but something that's always frustrated me just a little bit about other social workers' perceptions of my work is that I, I feel like medicine work, you know, plant medicine work, healing in ceremony and group work is, or I dare say, at the heart of social work. 
you know, and, and perhaps I think I even say the this original in my, social work. In yeah. my, yeah, I say this in my dissertation that the shaman is the sort of ancient uh, and enduring predecessor of, of social workers. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel a little bit frustrated sometimes when social workers are like, oh, what's this? I'm like, no, this is, this is where we come from. Yeah. This is um, foundational to us. And I think also, therefore, that social workers should be playing an important role in the way that psychedelics are rolled out across the world that we we have an important we're one of the important pieces of that um, and we we need to claim what our role is there and it's it's exactly what you said it's it's how these medicines are going to work at that at that more social level it's um i can imagine it's quite threatening to the field of social work in a way that it might not be conscious of and this is just world according to niles pure speculation but at its cold face, it's quite it's proximal, it's Apollonian, you know, and I think there's this growing sense that if you're working within in a, like, let's give people a typical example of what, a, you know, a social worker's bread and butter day to day. What sort of stuff would you be dealing with? Like, Depends where you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, in the world of child protection and yeah. family support, you know, if you're working on the front end, you might get a call about a new case, um, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, you need to now form an assessment of what's going on in this family um, and then, you know, make some hard decisions around the children and where they need to be and safety plan with the family uh, and input supports to this family to try and um, give them what they need in order to, to create safety mm-hmm. for their children at home. A lot, um, of that, a lot of that work. And this is what I would imagine you're expect. I'd love to know what your thoughts were coming back and seeing it through this different lens where a lot of the stuff which is gonna get myself in trouble here, but there's a lot of busy work and there's a lot of people rocking up to an earthquake with a dustpan and brush, like the rubble of you know what I mean? <laughs> and that is important, but there's what's at the core of a lot of that is wounds that certain elements of necessary day-to-day work will keep everyone afloat but they're, they're never going to be a boat yep. and yep. that's the sort of realisation that I think I would can imagine there's a bit of an ontological shock that just punches through on any psychedelic experience if you're in that field of complicated yeah. family dysfunctional family systems yeah yeah absolutely yeah and yeah I think a lot of social work you know some some people call social workers in certain roles the soft police <laughs> you know, and our job is actually often social control and being part of the system that kind of just keeps everything okay and working. And, and I feel to some extent that child protection is, is that way inclined. And um, I've always kind of been more, and you know, I don't want to say that it's always like that. No, it, You can yeah, definitely, as a social worker, you can be anti-oppressive. You can really do some, some cool stuff in those spaces. But that is a very hard gig to do, I think, in a system that is not designed to support that real kind of work um i think it's very difficult to to work against the system and and really um make those positive changes um and uh yeah but that's the system that we have for now and it is it is a fantastic system you know the the workers that i work with in child protection some of the most incredible people that i know uh extremely hardworking, extremely caring often burnt out often struggling to keep up with the workload and all that sort of stuff and yeah like you said a lot of busy work that's just keeping everything you know okay 
not a lot of work that's striking at the heart and healing the wounds and doing that deeper kind of work. And I feel like that's where medicine work has some really great potential. Yes, yeah, it has to be. Spaces. I think I should, I don't want to roll back what I've said, but I want to maybe contextualize it more because it's a demoralizing job at times, I'm sure. And, you know, you don't want to be offensive to, to people who are really, really genuinely trying to make the world a better place. But it's, you can't just go deep and big and oceanic all of the time. You know, you have to do the basic things, but it's what is it undergirded by and how can that be better integrated into models? And I think that's really big and important question for the broad church of, let's not just say social work, but but pastoral care and communal, community pastoral care, let's call it. You know, that's something which there's going to need to be lots of different conversations and I'm really excited about how that pans out. Um, when you were talking about you know, this working in really acute and important role of looking after children when they're small and vulnerable. A couple of other sort of leaders and, you know, seminal people in, in psychedelic field and, and, and associated adjacent fields um, have had ex- have had particular phenomenological experiences on psychedelics. I'm thinking Bessel van der Kolk's had one. He talks to a guy who works in the CPS equivalent in, in Canada, I think. Dick Schwartz, apparently, where they've had a basically a sort of download, a visceral download of all of the pain of the trauma traumatized children that they've been involved in the care of. Has that ever? It's none of my business because I can imagine it'd be quite confronting. But has anything like that ever happened to you on psychedelics? Um. Yeah, well, I've had some. I've had some of the content from my experiences in child protection come up in ceremony before. Um. And, you know, I think there's still more there that still needs to be resolved. Um, There, yeah, at the time when I was in child protection and I had experiences with medicines, um, I think there was at least a handful of times where I realized that I shouldn't be doing that because I was too overwhelmed. I was too in the chaos of life. That, to be doing the, to be the doing job. medicine yeah. work, and, yeah, and I yeah, yeah. and I realized that, and I stopped, and yeah. and uh, you know I went through a whole grieving process and some real challenging emotional times when I was in child protection, and then I came out of that and found a kind of rhythm in the work and was quite enjoying it. But then you know there came another time where I realized that I wanted to work with psychedelics and that I wanted to write my PhD. So um, I had you know a really dark time at a certain point in my time with child protection that I kind of came out of and I'm kind of glad to be able to say that I pushed through that and found myself in that work but then consciously decided that that wasn't where I wanted to be um but you know and since then I haven't done a lot of processing of that time until actually recently I had an experience with um with mushrooms with somebody who I know and who has some knowledge of this sort of space with child protection. And there was a really beautiful moment there at late in the evening after we'd been through the kind of uh, more sort of subliminal space when we'd come back and we were sitting around the fire and a bit more sober but still in the medicine. And I just remember sitting there and all of this stuff just bubbled to the surface. And I just told him, this person, this friend, I told him the stories of the families. And basically I just, I, 
I um I think one of the things that had happened to me was that I had lost a little bit of the empathy from the burnout. I'd lost touch with some of the care that was there. And in that moment that night, I sat there and I told him about these families that I cared about. And as I did it, I, you know, tears just drifted down my eyes. And I was reconnecting with the part of me that cared deeply about these families, which was why I was so affected the way I was. And that was the medicine that I needed, you know, was to reconnect with the part of me that cared about them. And I, you know, I could have never, I didn't know that 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 was where I was at, but until I had that experience. You, you, you weren't, you weren't able to connect with it at the time you wouldn't have been able to do your job, you know, at that moment. Yes. And what comes up for me when you say that is, wouldn't it be nice if we had a rolling, a basically just a place that paramedics, emergency physicians, cops, CPS vest people could just go to, you know, almost like not until they're in crisis. It's just like part of your contract, you go here for, for, for five days every six months. After the first one, anyone that'd been through, they wouldn't be going, oh, it was a waste of time, you know, yeah. and... There's a build-up and that being jaded to be effective is, I think, probably quite a common experience at, at the cold face of that, the horrors of societal breakdown, you know. Um, have you found any particular... Is the, the sort of earthier, gentler feel of psilocybin more akin, like more attuned to that in you? Or do you find it... Do you, do you find certain psychedelics will gravitate towards different areas of healing for you? Yeah, I've not had particularly healing experiences with LSD for myself. No, no nor have I. It's more mushrooms and more yeah. ayahuasca. Um, yeah. Um, it's everyone's. I think we're just. Who knows? But I think we all have a different. <laughs> You know, the physiologist is going to give you a few reasons why, the shaman is going to give you a few reasons why, but I think our inner healing intelligence does, it's like sort of divines us to the divine. Yeah, if yeah. That is yeah. A, not a horrible, yeah. We've got our, ridiculously um, our allies, as yeah. Steve Bright likes to call them. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you the, tell me, you, this research, you know, you sort of parceled out different ways in which you could fit back into social work and you're, one of the, I thought the really great sort of synopsis of it was that it seems to connect with an inner Socratic voice. How do you, could you unpack that term for me? Um, yeah, I remember reading that and I thought, wow, that's great. Uh, it was a participant was reporting on their experiences of ayahuasca. And, um, you know, it's interesting. People so often have experiences on mushrooms as well as ayahuasca of um, having a visceral encounter with a, a, an entity, an energy, a higher intelligence. Sometimes they perceive it as the plant spirit, the ayahuasca. Sometimes it's a divine principle or something like that. But um, for those who are maybe more, you know, not spiritually inclined, mm-hmm. I think 
they still experience something which is phenomenologically <laughs> other, yeah, which is yeah, this yeah. kind of higher intelligence speaking to them. And yeah. so I think in an attempt to put words to what that was from an atheist perspective, they went, it's an inner Socratic dialogue. And I thought, that's great. What, what good language. <laughs> I'm just imagining, you know, the, whatever the spirit in the sky going, okay, we've got this next one and he's a Socrates. So you go, all right, Socrates, you're going to, Gaia, you've got to go to him. Yeah. This one's a contrarian, so you're going to be masculine energy. So you go to that one. You know, they're all just like, boo, boo, just, you know, zooming out of them. That's what the, that's what the hole in the roof's for, just for those, like, <laughs> they're all watching slightly different uh, Netflix channels, you know. Uh, <laughs> it feels that way, doesn't it? The, that's something that's always astounded me about medicine is how personal and how almost, you know, individually designed the experience is that people have for their healing. How, how bespoke. Um, it's, it's almost like pushback on myself from that. And we can have chatted to Chris Leatherby recently. He, he's a, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he's a, he's a, quite a staunch materialist, I think, and making a very interesting case to reconcile the metaphysical reports with a materialist worldview. Um, and, you know, I, I would imagine that there would be some sort of pushback about a naturalistic fallacy. You know, there's... Because in other ways, we are such amazing spin doctors to protect ourselves from trauma. So if people are saying, well, it's like the, 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 the puddle... I don't know where I got this from, but someone's previously said this but you know the puddle thinking isn't this crevice in the rock just the perfect fit for me you know so there's potentially you know the the the, 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 the how taylor made these experiences can can feel the question of that is undeniable it just feels like it's it's for you by you um and whether or not that is that is still worth the price of admission as an improvement, I think, on our mental health paradigms currently. And then we can get into the, we don't need to stop the process and then say, well, what is the ground truth of this? Like that will, that can be a conversation that runs in parallel. But the, how Taylor made the experiences can feel is important. But obviously things can go really wrong if they don't have the support. So maybe to sort of fast forward a little bit, sorry to jump all over the place, but you're, you're working as a, as a social worker how did you transition into the integration, which I see as being wanting, it's almost like you're trying to pay it forward. Like you're wanting to provide the support that you had, you know, you just lucked out with, you know, what are the key components in your opinion about creating a solid integration space? Well, I think first of all, good preparation, you know, knowing what you signed up for, doing your own research. Um, And I think, having doing some normal therapy you know doing having somebody who's by your side unpacking some of your you know some of your psychology understanding yourself deeper getting into practices that are about self-exploration that aren't necessarily with a psychedelic meditation yoga mindfulness breath work um various things that work for you finding your flavor of of a self-practice of a spiritual or for those not spiritually inclined, um, of a practices which bring you into places of stillness and reflection and those kinds of things. Contemplative practices, I suppose we could call them. For yeah, me. contemplative yeah. practices. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it's um, mindfulness, you know, a secular mindfulness, or it's um, you know, a particular philosophy that you're drawn to, any, anything like that. Just doing that self exploration, um, I think is great and having a therapist or a guide or a coach someone who can support you through it um, I think is really important 
Um, and I think, you know, approaching it through that biopsychosocial lens, you know, getting your diet right, making sure that you're ticking all of those, as many of those boxes as you can, getting yourself into the right place for it. Um, and, you know, I think the word integration, it's such a good word, but it's such a broad word, you know, integration is something I think that we need to do for all things in life, not just psychedelic experiences, taking time outside of the daily buzz of life to slow down and just be with what is in your body, in your system and have a relationship with yourself that has space and time to, you know, develop. That is a really, you know, that's integration and that is something that we need to do and whether we take a psychedelic or not. We should do it at the end of every day. You know, if we can take some time to integrate what's happened in our day, we should do that as well. Um, yeah. The the point you make about it, there's not really a bright line between, um, you know, people who've just had a psychedelic experience and therefore need to integrate that experience. You sort of need to integrate all experiences in life where they just sort of sit <laughs> in somewhere in, in the ether in, in your body. Um, how did you become interested? The, the thing which I think differentiates you from other people who, who are focusing on the integration side of things is that you're, I don't know how to put it, but your your access is more somatic than other people's mm-hmm. that I've encountered. Where has your interest in, maybe just, it would be great if you could sort of explain what, what how you think of somatic work and 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 then how, how you came to be interested in that and where that fits in your your work sure so first of all i want to add yeah. with integration that i think and this is something that i heard um from a a great uh, worker over in canada pierre bouchard and he, he said this to me that um integration is iterative people think especially because of the way the clinical trials are set up, that you do four prep sessions, you do two medicine sessions, and you do four integration sessions, that it's this linear process. But, you know, what he says is, no, that's not how it works. You know, your integration from this medicine session becomes your preparation for the next one and so on and so forth. And, you know, your your integration is this ongoing, unfolding, complex process um, that might, you know, for a lot of people require, if they really want to make a big change in their life, they might need to sit with a medicine many times and do periods of integration, then come back and then do periods of integration, then come back. And so, um, you know, it's, a, it's a long and iterative process is, is what I wanted to add to that. Um, but somatics. So my interest in somatics came from after my time with in South America and, you know, there's no way I would have gone to the classes and the things that I went to afterwards if I hadn't had an ayahuasca ceremony first. But I remember reading this um, this Facebook post to come to some yoga class by a person who is now my housemate, Simon Martin. And he and his partner at the time, Chantel, ran these yoga classes and um, they were embodied, super embodied, you know, and they would get us you know, moving around the room in that, you know, kind of ecstatic dance kind of way. And then they'd get us to do some breath work and some catharsis and, and all these different things, you know, that I had never really encountered before. But I was going to these classes and I felt 
like I was learning how to become more authentic in, in an embodied way. And it was like, fuck yeah, this is great. And those guys did, you know, a whole lot of other stuff. Um, stuff that I think at the time it was like Tantra. They called it Tantra, you know. Um, but really it was embodied. It was classes about embodiment. And there was an aspect of sexuality involved in it, but to be honest, that was not the primary focus. The primary focus was, you know, going in, into your body and into the felt experience in your body um, in an interpersonal environment and um, maybe sort of working through a lot. For me, what happened was I worked through a lot of the the blocks um, that I had around interpersonal relationships and learned how to be a more vulnerable, authentic version of myself. And so that was just like, that blew my mind. And as I discovered, a lot of the work that I was learning about from their work was inspired from medicines, psychedelic medicines in the first place. You know, And that's something that I've discovered since as well, is that a lot of the time what the medicines are teaching people are about embodiment. And that's what they're saying to people is they're sending that message. You need to come home to your body. You need to find safety in your body. You need to treat your body more kindly. You need to feed it more respectfully and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I kind of separate but still connected to medicine found this um, passion for embodiment. And then I became friends with Simon and, you know, had a, a personal relationship with him and then even got involved in running a few workshops for his business, which was called Heart School, that taught about embodiment practices, um, and yeah, and at and at some point in there, I had a conversation with Ros Watts from over in uh, London, who did the clinical trials with mushrooms, and I was trying to work out what to do for my PhD. I was like, do I do it on embodiment, psychedelics, blah blah blah, and she just kind of collapsed it for me. She was like, hey, when I got into this field. Um, I was trained as a clinical psychologist and realized very quickly that a lot of those skills were not that useful for psychedelic sessions. I needed to upskill in all these other skills, breathwork, mindfulness, da-da-da-da-da, somatic work. But there was nowhere in the literature that spoke to the need for those skills. So she was like, write something that that makes that statement. So yeah. that's my PhD. So you're, it's, um, it's pretty good caliber of advice to have it sort of you know your your thesis factor analyzed by Rosalind Watts you know it's pretty good um I, I I couldn't agree more um I think just even if someone's a died in the woods will scientific materialist or a very intellectualizer of it, it's like trauma and the healing of trauma they call especially with MDMA, inverse trauma. You know, how can one or several experiences heal something? You say, well, it doesn't take more than one or two to really developmentally just completely derange someone. So why is it not that the disembodying experience of wounds in people's lives, surely the inverse of that would be a re-embodiment? It's, it, it makes logical, materialist sense and... Um, Tell me what you think of this, and then I'd love to know what your experiences are with different clients coming in who maybe aren't from that world. The the, the average response to that in people who have trained in those more conventional routes, I think, will be a sort of sunk cost fallacy, and, and to say, well, we're currently hierarchically 
above everyone else, whether they're psychiatrists, clinical psychologists, you know, there's a certain credentialism that creeps in and there's, it takes quite a lot of humility to be like, oh, that was some cost fallacy. A lot of that is not actually, I'm going to say remotely useful, you know? Um, so that's one area where there's going to be resistance coming from the more conventional side at the therapy level. But then at the client side, if you were to take some of the more entry-level embodiment practices to the average bloke on the street, I'm sure a lot of them would, would run, punch you, cringe, or run a mile. How does that, How do? what do you think of those two sorts of <laughs> impasses? How, how, how do we get past this? Because yeah. I fully support your work and I think it makes very logical sense and it, it has to go there. That'll be the next iteration once it gets scheduled eight. But those two sort of naysayers, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I think, I think embodiment is political. So are psychedelics, okay. right? In the sense that... Um, when you start to tune into your own body and you start to tune into this kind of concept of an inner healing intelligence, right? People say, people talk about the, the idea that you get a cut on your hand and your body will heal that cut, right? It knows how to heal itself and the psyche knows how to heal itself too is the rhetoric that's spoken about in uh, psychedelic communities. But that rhetoric is also shared by the somatic psychologists and communities and that's kind of what they're seeking to do is to bring you into contact with your body which has the wisdom which knows how to heal itself right um and so in that sense it's kind of um what that if it's true that we have an inner healing intelligence right then our job is not to be an expert our job is not to be the knower our job is not to be the top-down practitioner that's working with the mind and cognitive change processes as much. What we're now wanting to work with is um, helping the facilitating the client to have an encounter with their own self-energy in IFS language, um, with their own authentic embodied self in a more sort of somatic language. We're, we're just a facilitator that's holding space for them to contact that aspect of themselves. Um, and so in that sense, that flies in the face of sort of the older paradigm of psychiatry in particular, which is that, you know, we're the expert, your mental health disorder is, you know, a, a malfunction in the chemistry of your brain. And here, if we give you a daily dose of something that adjusts the chemistry, that will fix your issue. Now, I'm kind of oversimplifying it. I understand that psychiatry is a very complex field and there's lots of practitioners in different areas of it. And lots in psychedelics. And same with psychedelics, yeah. they're, they're entering into the field, not, yeah. Yeah, it's the field of nutritional psychiatrists sure. who don't rely on pharmacological interventions and all that sort of stuff. But And I think it's what I'm speaking to is a paradigm that's that's cross-disciplinary. It's not just psychiatrists, it's not just psychologists. It's, it's everyone kind of had this mindset of you know, fixing and, and things like that, fixing, pathologizing. And we're now shifting, I guess, away from a fixing, pathologizing mindset into a more trusting and honoring paradigm. And so that in that sense, it's political. Um, and so I think, uh, how do you deal with that? <laughs> I don't know. That's tricky. That's a really hard one to deal with. The second one with, uh, you know, um, the person on the street and doing embodiment practices with them, you know, I guess for me the way that I work is that um, I try to work with the body 
as quickly as I can and as safely as I can. But sometimes it's necessary to work through the mind first. You know, sometimes you have to create safety through the mind that the person has to understand the concepts. And sometimes you have to use science and go, hey, listen, here's the nervous system. This is how it's broken down. This is how it works. And, and give them the kind of hard facts of it so that they can be like, oh, okay, we're doing it, especially for men. You know, <laughs> yeah, oh, we're doing yeah. this for a purpose. Or, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a reason for this and this is how it works. And mm -hmm. okay, all right, mm -hmm. I'll do it. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's how I deal with that. Um, but in terms of the old, you know, I actually think with the first one, the old paradigm is collapsing around us. And ultimately people are starting to recognize that they can take their own mental health into their own hands and they are starting to have this more, this attitude of trusting and honoring. And I think people are yearning for that. They don't want to sit in an office with a therapist who's giving them advice. They don't want to sit in an office with a therapist who's telling them what to do, who, um, you know, who, when they tell them that they got more anxious goes, Oh, shall we up your dose then of your antidepressant? A lot of people don't want to do that anymore. And they're, they're yearning for a new paradigm. So I think the old paradigm will just eventually kind of age out and, um, you know, drift away. And yeah, of course, there's still a need for it to some extent. But I think um, naturally we're kind of moving towards this new space. Mm, the integration, I suppose, of <laughs> it's almost like if you have parts of you that aren't serving you, if they're really, really not serving you, then, you know, at the, in the psychedelic space, they sort of need to ostensibly die but most things that aren't serving you can re reappropriate it to serve a different purpose and like IFS shows us that you know the protectors all of a sudden become good at doing other things except besides you know beating the shit out of the, the, the person themselves so um, I don't know I just think everyone that's entering into this space has big gaps in their own literature, so to speak, things that would make them feel really uncomfortable. So maybe the metric would be you just get all of these various people who are interested in the field and say, okay, what would make, we've got all these different things you can do, which of them would make you feel, do you know the least about and would make you feel the most uncomfortable? <laughs> he takes it the 65-year-old psychiatrist and it's like, I don't know, um, something, you know, some embodied practice, some, you go and do that, you know, that's your module, you have to do that, you have to, you have to join the drum circle, and, and then the woman who comes along, who says, you know, I want, I'm very comfortable, can I join that, say, no, you, you don't know anything about pharmacology, <laughs> you know, you don't need to know, you just need to have a, so it's almost like the metric is, does this make you feel uncomfortable, because if it makes you feel uncomfortable, it's a, it's friction within your psyche, trying to protect you from uh, transcending something so and it also then gives us the capacity to more constructively criticize different things because we're coming from a position of at least not a working knowledge necessarily but a, a, a charitable position where you can then push back against things so that's when i think about integration at a professional there's integration for the individual psyche and then there's integration for the, the there's you know people who are charged with facilitating the healing of the individual that's yes. Yeah. Rant. Totally. And I, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a friction that's going to be unfolding for quite some time in terms of what level of skill and knowledge do you need to be a psychedelic practitioner. And, you know, if you've only studied shamanism under somebody over in the Amazon, maybe that won't be enough because you're still dealing with a Western mind, 
at the end of the day. And so the integration aspect is going to be more complicated than um, or different than how it looked in the culture that you were learning from a maestro mm-hmm. in and vice versa. If you've only ever done CBT as a clinical psychologist uh, and you jump into, you know, psychedelic work, then some of the more intuitive and, you know, um, drum circle style mm-hmm. aspects of the experience might be a little bit confounding. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you need to, and if you haven't had a personal experience of it, then maybe that's something that you would benefit from. Totally. Uh, and Do so there's a bri- there's a bridging that needs to be happening. I think. Yeah, it's the the you have to. I think you have to experience it yourself personally before you can even comment. Really, oh, you can comment, but no one's going to take you seriously because you just you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um. So, uh, conscious of your time, but I just one area that you know we've touched on your PhD, but. I would really love to have more conversations with you in the future, just simply because there's just so much to talk about. But an area that we've chatted off Mike a little bit about was your um, your interest in embodying healing through psychodrama, you know, in a, in an applied sense. So my question for you is, if you could design your own retreat center young Tobias rocks up and it's not a, you know, single night experience and then back on the bus. What does it look like? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, I want to sort of just speak to the podcast that I mentioned before um, that I think is very exciting, um, upcoming called Punk Therapy. Um, which stands for Psychedelic Underground Neural Kindness, and that's going to be released soon. And and this podcast is all about, I think, this exact topic. How do you orchestrate these kinds of experiences where people get um, really beautiful corrective experiences in in psychedelic medicinal sessions that combines psychodrama, creative creativity, somatic work, earth-based medicine, and psychedelics in a kind of beautiful weave that, that gives people these these healing experiences. And so for one, I think I'd have practitioners who were kind of oriented in that way at the retreat. Um, I mean, have you seen Nine Perfect Strangers? No. no. Oh, okay. It's a TV show where Nicole Kidman from Australia, she, she is the role of a, a retreat centre leader. Okay. And um, she microdoses people on mushrooms without telling them at oh, okay. a retreat center, right? And the retreat center that she has is gorgeous property yeah. out, you know, somewhere in the, in in the in nature. And and that's the kind of thing that I imagine really beautiful, well-designed place, retreat center um that is out in nature where people can unplug, you know, from their daily life and go and get away and share an experience with a group of a relatively small group of other people also on a healing journey and for me it wouldn't be just for people who have depression just people who have anxiety and it wouldn't just be for people who have a clinical issue at all there would be a mixed bag you know ranging from people who have clinical depression to people who are just seeking more meaning or direction in their life um and yeah i guess they would be held 
really well by a group of practitioners that would be diverse. You know, in my head, you'd kind of want a medical doctor as well as, you know, sometimes I imagine doing psychedelics is like, <laughs> like giving birth and you want, you want the medical doctor, you yeah. want the midwife, you want the doula yeah. if you've got one. Um, and you know, you want your nurses, you want a whole team around you and they each serve a different function. And that's kind of how I imagine psychedelic work. And, you know, you want a whole, a whole team there. You want someone who can guide you spiritually or shamanically. And maybe that's an indigenous practitioner that's there. You want somebody who is mental health trained that can guide you from a clinical perspective. You want somebody who's medically trained who can make sure that your body is going to be safe for that experience. Um, and I also think you want someone who's musically trained. Totally. A resident, like a bard, you know, you need someone just on site. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, just have that full experience where, you know, it's, you, you've got meditation, you've got yoga, you've got healthy eating, you've got all of the integrative practices weaved in with the medicine sessions. Um, yeah. In this holistic kind of retreat. I think that would be amazing. Yeah. I think that's, Hopefully that's coming and the the parameters of that, the way that it rolls out. I would like to see a space where, a wor- I don't want to be too um, Pollyannish about it, but I would like to see a world where you can sit here now and you and I could say, this is the type of bar that I want. You know, and there's all the different types of bar. I was in a bar this afternoon running with thieves. It's very different. You know, we're in South Frio here. I used to live around here. Every, everywhere has its different style. There's places you can go to get absolutely hammered. There's places you can go for a cocktail, you know. And that's where I feel... I think we sometimes bogeyman the entrance of this into Western world. And sometimes we actually don't give enough credit to the individuals who are pixels within that world that we still make consumer choices. And as long as it's not monopolized in one direction or another we must respect the sovereignty of people to to have those different types of experiences and not be too paternalistic about how, what they look like and let people vote with their feet. So I would say a retreat like yours is going to win out against the, you know, exploitative, just off the bus from a Ketos type place because people know their inner healing intelligence will, will choose that. And I just hope that uh, you get your... <laughs> get to reify that and bring it to life um, what is really piquing your interest in the field of psychedelics right now we spoke about a few things offline but I'm just curious to know like where do you see yourself focusing on in the next several years good question um, I think you know I want to finish off this somatic work the PhD and that's my main focus Something that I'm thinking about at the moment is the ethics of integration work and I want to publish a paper on running psychedelic integration through an ethical framework Um, just to, you know, because it it seems that, you know, I sent off an email to my national body about, you know, hey, what do you think about the ethics of this? And they kind of didn't really weigh in, you know. They didn't give you any... Give me a strong answer. And I don't think yeah. many of the national bodies are keen to give a strong answer They're just on checking. That. They're just... They're, they're not waiting to see what happens, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I want to push push for some change around that. Um, what am I excited about? I'm just excited to see, 
you know, where it's going to go. I know that there's going to be a magic mushroom clinical trial in Perth sometime in the next year probably. Um, And so I'm really excited to see where that goes, you know, and where that might then grow into. Um, And something, something that I'm excited about, something that I think maybe I might want to go back to one day is ayahuasca and kind of like the mixed method of indigenous shamanism with modern sort of mental health practices, putting those two together a bit like how Gabor Mate did that in Canada for for a um, piece of work that he did with addictions. And, you know, interestingly in his work, he did it with um, First Nations peoples as well. And so, so that's something that kind of interests me is like, okay, well, yeah, um, uh, these medicines are really powerful healing on a social fabric level and we live in a country that still has a deeply, um, uh, deeply fractured, yeah, social fabric between the First Nations peoples of Australia and uh, the rest of us and... So that there's still so much, so much work and healing to be done in that space. And I just wonder, I mean, I don't know how, um, how I, don't, I haven't spoken to any First Nations person about how they feel about something like ayahuasca. And I don't know if anyone would be particularly drawn to it, but I can imagine the healing power of these medicines and especially if there is such a thing as an Australian ayahuasca, you know, and it seems like there probably is, then the power for that medicine to connect, you know, because in, in my understanding, in the First Nations people of Australia have a very deep relationship to the land. And as far as I know, the indigenous peoples of South America, ayahuasca is a powerful means through which they deepen and um, continue their relationship with the land. And so if that's the case, if the medicines of a land can help reconnect you with the spirit of that land, then I could imagine that there lies a middle ground that could help to um, reconnect non-Indigenous Australians to the spirit of the land, which I think is a necessary thing for everyone and also help first nations australia to reconnect with their their culture and their land and and that sort of thing and and there's a middle ground that could be a, a a place that we could both come into the middle with each other in a way so there's some i think there's some reconciliation available through these medicines and that's something that i would love to be involved with one day i think um those conversations around truth and reconciliation you know I, f- I forget his name I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes but the, the guy who did the work in uh, in the Middle East with uh, people from Israel and Palestine having you know group sessions together I'm obviously originally from Northern Ireland there's a lot of work that I think could be done there uh, and there was a lot of political and social work done which which was very effective but um you know we didn't even get into truth and reconciliation it's just the conversation the opening conversation on gambits are so fraught it's hard to know who and where you know who should begin the conversation and, and how um, but I think we all have a felt sense that if they're powerful that, that that's an area that you know will hopefully come down the track once once we've I don't know instantiated some of the more 
obvious, you know, run-of-the-mill things. But yeah, I hear you, I hear you. Um, so if thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your time and just, um, it, I was quite tangential, but I think a link to the other two podcasts you've done and all your work, your actual, um, your master's thesis as well, if that's, we can put, you know, because there's there's I just found there's an article online. When are you due to be finished with your PhD? Do you have a sort of timeline for when, when you're looking at finishing up? Um, I'd like to finish, yeah, probably in the next two years. Two years, okay, yeah. yeah. So well, I'd like to finish sooner if I can. <laughs> I'd like to finish, yeah. There's, I'd, I'd like to finish my PhD and there's actually finishing the PhD and they're not always the same date. Um, if people are wanting to connect with you, come and see you as a client, where would you like me to direct people? Just jump to www.psychedelichealthcare, all lowercase, all one word, .com.au and yeah, there's some information on there. Um, and you can read more about what I do, how I practice, and you can book online through through the website. Great. Um, well, I hope people take you up on that and um, meet you in person. And thanks so much for your time, Tobias. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you too. It was a fascinating conversation.